Let's start off. How many of you play music, play music in some distant part of your life? Raise your hand. Yeah, so you know that 5-4 is the most unkind of all time registers. 5 quarter are for measure, but the most rewarding is 7 all. So Really great. Um, we're in a series that we keep saying about gravity, about the gospel and how it appears to be the simple thing, but it is a simple thing of great beauty and great depth, and, and really thing with so much simplicity just explains so much life. And the, the subject we're looking at today that we're going to try to take on with the Gospels is why is it that I struggle so much to do good? Why is it that when I do good, that evil is so very near? In the same moment, sometimes they're living right there together in my life. Why is it that that struggle never seems to end? And um, to start off, I'm going to start this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his book, Mere Christianity in the opening pages there said that this sense of right and wrong was a clue to the secret of the universe. It was a clue to understanding the most complex things in the universe. And he, he, I'm going to change his illustrations, but this is more or less what he said. He said, imagine this. He said, Imagining, imagine that someone cuts you off in traffic. Um, what do you feel? You, you feel anger. You say, that, you know, it's, it's not right to cut somebody off in traffic. Or imagine a situation that maybe occurs in your home, which is, you know, one person is a, has, not, has been sort of sloughing off. Another person has been doing more than their share of duties. One person has been doing all the cooking. And so after three or four nights of doing all the dinner cooking, that person says to the other person, the other says to their spouse, says, why don't you cook the dinner tonight? And, you know, it's only fair if you do your work. Now, what's behind those statements is not just simple unhappiness with the other person's behavior. What's behind those statements is sort of a moral imperative. The first is that it's not really right to cut somebody off in traffic. The second is that it's not, it's not really right to take advantage of somebody and have them do an unfair share of the work. Those clues about right and wrong, those, the sense of right and wrong is a clue to something that's bigger that's going on. There's two things that I think are really peculiar about these illustrations. The first is that the same person that might feel anger when they're being cut off might be the person who wouldn't do their share of the cooking. And the person that doesn't do their share of the cooking might be the person that would just cut you off in traffic. That's peculiar. So we, we seem to err in different ways. We don't err the same way. We, we kind of find our place where we like to err, and, and that's where we make our mistakes. The second is this, that when people go, in, when they have a conflict or they have a quarrel about these sorts of things, they no one ever really says, well, you know, it's okay to cut people off in traffic. Of course it's not okay to cut people off in traffic for a couple reasons. This is very dangerous. But people are very likely if you say, hey, we were driving to work today and I saw you driving like a maniac and you cut right in front of people. What was that about? And the person will say, well, you know, I was late to work and I wanted to get here. They'll exempt themselves from this unwritten standard or law or, or rule, whatever it is. The same way, you, you know, why don't you cook the dinner tonight? And the person may very well say, well, you know, I've been having a really hard week, and you know, can't you just do it one more time, or can't we do takeout tonight? I'm just, I'm just really tired. So two peculiar things. People don't err in the same way, and people very rarely disagree that there's some kind of unwritten rule or standard behavior. They just try to exempt themselves from it. It's all very frustrating. It's all very frustrating. Um, if you want to try to understand the gospel in a very simple way, you can think of it in two halves. The first half of the gospel is simple. It's that life is cosmic disappointment. 
that everything in the end ends in something less than you expected. It's as simple as, you know, uh, buying a car, and you have a new car, you're excited, it's very shiny, and you park it in a parking lot, and um, five days later, somebody uh, bashes it, backs into it. That is cosmic disappointment. Nothing ever lasts, nothing ever lives up to what you're hoping for. Everything is cosmic disappointment. The second half of the gospel, actually, is that God is greater than all that disappointment, and he has rescued and redeemed all that in, a, in, a, in, a, in frankly, an unbelievable way. So those are the two halves. If life is cosmic disappointment, and that's the first half of the gospel, what I'd say is that the corollary to that law, the first corollary to that law, is that the biggest disappointment is people. And the second corollary is that the person with whom we are most, most unhappy with is ourselves. And so that is where this song, The Radiohead, comes in. How come I end up where I started? How can I end up where I belong? Won't take my eyes off the ball again. You reel me out and you cut the string. That sort of cosmic disappointment with the self, that there's what we want to be and there's, in fact, what we are. And they're two completely different things. In, in the movie Train Spotting, if you saw that, you'll, you'll remember the opening, uh, the opening scene where the antihero, Mark Renton, uh, goes on a rant about this 15 steps. In fact, when the Radiohead... Uh, wrote this, and when Tom York put the lyrics to it, he, he named it 15 Step because basically this anti-hero hero, Mark Renton makes these 15 choices or 15, 15 steps, and they begin well and they end poorly, much like that song. And here they are. It's really good. Mark Renton, he says this. He says, choose life. Choose a job. Choose a career. Choose a family. Choose a big television, choose washing machines, cars, compact disc players, and electrical tin openers. Choose good health, low cholesterol, and dental insurance. Choose fixed interest mortgage repayments. Choose a starter home. Choose your friends. Choose leisure wear and matching luggage. Very nice. Choose a three-piece suite on hire purchase and a range of fabrics. Choose do-it-yourself and wondering who you are on Sunday morning. Choose sitting on that, lug- on that couch watching mind-numbing, spirit-crushing, Game shows, stuffing junk food into your mouth. Choose rotting away at the end of it all, pissing your last in a miserable home, nothing more than an embarrassment to the selfish brats you have spawned to replace yourself. Choose your future. Choose life. But why would I want to do anything like that? I chose to not choose life. I chose something else. And the reasons? There are no reasons. Who needs reasons when you've got heroin? We are the most disappointing people to ourselves, and we are perplexed with the decisions we make when we could have life and we choose whatever our own heroin is. We all have our, we all have our addictions. We all have our, our, our little gods. <clears throat> now, we have what I would say is uh, there's this standard that's out there. And, and, and I'm, for the sake of the argument, I'm going to talk about it as though it were a law, okay? It's just a little bit easier that way, but we're going to talk about a law. We have very, a very ambivalent relationship with laws. We really do. We, we know they're good for us, but we're not really thrilled about them. And, and one way we can get to that is by understanding what our intersections and what are with the law, what our interactions are like when we cross the law. So the law does lots of things, but I'm only talking about four. The law protects us. The law provokes us. The law examines us. And the law condemns us. And there's no better place to see that than in traffic laws, um, which, uh, frankly, are um, maddening for me. But um, it, it works like this. 
you um, pull out onto your street and you see a sign and it says the speed limit is 25. Okay, it's a good law because what they've found in Charlotte is that if you drive at 25 miles an hour, fewer squirrels will be killed at 25 miles an hour than will be killed at 35. And so for the sake of squirrels and other small things like children, um, (laughs) it's a good idea that when the speed limit is 25 that you drive 25. That is how the law protects us. Makes sense. There is a sense that the law provokes us. Um, When I was coming here this morning, always just a little bit later than I feel comfortable with, I got onto John Belk and kind of was swooping around the south side of town there, and I was thinking, I can't remember what the speed limit is here. Is it 55 or is it 60? I'm hoping it's 60. And uh, because if it's 55, I'm going to go 60. And if it's 60, I'm going to go 65. And if it's 65, I'm going to go 70, and so on and so forth. There's a way in which if you say you can't do this, your child will always do it, right? There's a way in which the law provokes us to do the very thing that it's trying to protect us from doing. Um, But generally speaking, that's not good. Now, this did not happen. But let's imagine that speed limit was 55, and let's imagine I was going 70. And at the... Not that that would ever happen. And if I was going 70, that uh, an officer of the law. Johnny Law is his name, actually. Shot me with his radar gun. I had been examined by the law at that moment, and he will write out a warrant saying what my error was and requiring me to uh, show up in front of a judge who will, in time, judge me um, and condemn me for that crime and will require some kind of payment back. So, I mean, the law is really, really frustrating for me. Um, I was on vacation last summer, and I was driving from San Francisco to this little town that I grew up, and I met my best friend from my childhood days in San Francisco, and we were driving back up to uh, nowhere in Northern California, and um, we had to go across the Bay Bridge to get there. And so, so Mark said, hey, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the, my little radar thing, it's like a little radar pass, you know, and uh, we'll put it up in the, on your, you know, in the car. And that way when we go through the Bay Bridge, we won't have to wait. We'll just go right. It's like a little toll pass. We'll just go right through it. We'll zap it with the radar and off we'll go. And so we put it up and off we went across the Bay Bridge and the Benicia Bridge and whatever. Great time. Several weeks later, I got a letter um, uh, from the bridge authority of the Bay Area. <laughs> Apparently, my friend's pass was... Um, I don't know if it didn't have any more passes on it or if it was broken or what, but uh, we didn't beep when we should have beeped. And what was funny was, uh, what was not was not funny was the amount of the fine. Um, <laughs> but, but what was really funny is that they had this little camera, has your picture on it, and there we were. My license plate, and then there was me, and then there was Mark, and my mouth was just wide open and I was yapping. And I was like, okay, I'm guilty, but it's not right. I was guilty, but I was ignorant. I didn't mean to break the law. But did I break the law? I absolutely broke the law. And so what did I do? I went online and I paid the fine and made the restitution. That is a case where it feels like no matter what I do, even when I'm trying to do my best, even when I'm doing everything right, the law is crushing me. It is sitting on me. 
And that is exactly the experience in the small scale that the Apostle Paul talked about in his experience with the law before he was a Christian. He says more or less this in the book of Romans. He says, before I was a Christian, I was utterly crushed by the law. I knew the standard that it was setting for right living, and I tried my very best to do everything that I could. And try as I might, no matter what I did, I found myself still short. Jesus talked about this himself. One day in a discussion with the Pharisees, they were asking him about the law, to talk about the law. And he said something like this. He said, look, even, you know, which, which of the commandments is the greatest, I think was the question. And what he said was, you know, really, even if you say, you know, that, that, that you don't murder, what I say is that um, if you even look at somebody with hate, then you're guilty of murder. And if you say, and you say, don't be an adulterer, that's what the law says, don't, don't, don't go around adulterating, I guess, or something like that. And, and, and what I say is, when you look at another person with lust, you're an adulterer. And this is the standard of the law crushing us, that no matter what we attempt to do, we cannot live up to the standards that are set in this moral law in this universe. There's never enough. And, and you end up in this place where you're constantly trying to be, behave better, better, like in the Radiohead song, etc., 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 and it's never good enough. Well, you would think that Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, who founded a good number of the first churches uh, that were founded in the Christian faith back in yield Roman times. Actually, that would be like yield English, but back in the Roman days of the Roman Empire. And he mentored countless others through these letters that ultimately came to the New Testament. You would think that a, a guy like that would have insight, sort of like maybe like a Christian Jedi master, that he could sort of wave his fingers like this, and he could make this crushing pain of, of the law go away. And he did. I mean, he, he talks about how to do that. He says, the way is, there's therefore now condemnation for those who love the Lord. And so that's it. The way you escape the condemnation, the way you, you escape the crushing blow of the law is through faith in Christ. By accepting the, what Christians talk about, the work that Christ did on the cross. When Christ died on the cross, he was crushed. The Bible says that God the Father was pleased to do that and that he paid for your sin. And so, you know, it's like sending in the bill to the Bay Area Bridge Authority. You go free. And so the, laws, the, the restitution that's necessary under the laws are free. Sounds great. So you would think, okay, now, so what comes next? It must be good, right? Well, in Romans 7, which we're going to read here in a few minutes, we find out is that it's, it feels a little bit like jumping from the, fi- from the frying pan, I think, and into the fire. Because where there was this condemnation or this crushing blow before, now we find there's struggle. There's struggle. And, we, and you know, I'll tell you a story, and I think this will, this will illustrate it. You know, when you're going, you're kind of going with the crowd, you're going with the flow, things can be very, very easy. And when you try to go the other, try to go a different direction in your life, then you find out it's, change is difficult. It's a real struggle. Back in my little hometown, um, there's a pretty good sized river there, you know, the Sacramento River. And in, in, in the, and in the summers there are hot, well over 100 degrees many days and dry, and the river is cold and wide and beckoning. And so, Hundreds, thousands of kids um, go out onto the river and they lash their uh, inner, they lash inner tubes together and uh, they fill those inner tubes with plenty of ice cold frosty drinks and everybody gets on the inner tubes and they, you just float down the river and it's wonderful 
except that the water's freezing cold because it's right out of uh, <laughs> Sierra Nevada. But other than that, if you can stay sort of above the water, you'll have a great time. And it's really, it really is fun. Life goes by slowly. The bank is far away. You're having fun. You're listening to music. You're drinking beer or Dr. Pepper or whatever it is you want. And it's just great. And um, you're just going with the flow. What happens is when you reach the end of the journey, you've got a port off at this little jetty. And um, it's kind of funny, actually. But, um, you know, you haven't used your legs in a while for a while. They've been, when they've been in water, they've been in, you know, 60-ish degree water. So they're a little, uh, little stiff. Um, of course, your head's dizzy. A little bit too much sun, a little bit too much beer, maybe. Uh, something funny about that river is you never really pay attention to the bottom of the river, but when you get there, what you find out is that uh, the dang thing is covered with rocks, and apparently these rocks have been rolling around from the Sierra Nevadas for like a million years, and they are incredibly round and smooth, and they're all covered with this mossy green stuff. And so when you try to stand on them, it's not easy to keep your balance. And on top of all that, the river's not swift, but it has force. It has mass. It's huge. It's moving, you know, from... 200 miles from one place to another, and all that mass of water is pressing down, and it's pressing on your lease, and you find it's very hard to stabilize yourself, and often, it's really kind of funny, you'll see these really big, strong kind of He-Man guys crying like little girls as they float off downstream, a little bit too much beer on the head, and, and like, save me, save me, they're grabbing onto tree trunks and everything else, and it's like, they're grabbing onto tree trunks, and you know, how if, if you've ever done this in a river, you grab a tree trunk, and it's probably one of the worst things you can do, because what happens is, the water pulls you under, and they come up sputtering, it's really great. Um, and this is how it is. When we, this is the struggle that Paul is describing. That after you come to faith, what you find out is that you were moving in a direction that's incredibly difficult to change the direction now. And so this is what he says about this, uh, this change in the direction or this struggle. It's found in Romans seven twenty one through 25. going to be on the screen up here. Let's read it together. He says, so I find this law, this principle at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. From my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my, fl- of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. So that explains the struggle. That's where the struggle comes from. You might object here. You might say, you know, but I thought that when I became a Christian or when maybe you've been a Christian for 25 years and and something's erupted and you're trying to kind of fight down some new thing, you're saying, I thought that when I became a Christian, God saved me from this sin. He saved me from this mess. Shouldn't, you know, shouldn't I get the victory just like that? You know, shouldn't it be quicker? And it may... And maybe that's right. So I'd say, yeah, the good news is you, you've been saved from sin. But the bad news is that um, there in the middle of your salvation is a squatter. And that squatter needs to be moved off of the middle of your salvation. And, and here's the key. The squatter is your residual self. That's why it's so close. It's you. So when you want to do good, it's right there with you. When you want to do bad, it's right there with you as well because it's you. It's all you. Over time, the game is, the struggle is, to move the squatter off the land so that you can have the fullness of it 
and, 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 and everything that God's given you. But that happens by the struggle. We really would prefer, I think, here's the rub, I think that we would really prefer a sort of once-done sort of Savior. So it's like, you know, I need a Savior that died for my sins, and then what I want to do is give me kind of that Jedi master knowledge so I can go deeper in a way that will sort of subdue the struggle or allow me at least to ignore it. And in fact, what we get is we get this sort of salvation in the moment, this promise from God, this exemption from this condemnation, and then what comes behind it is a continuous regeneration that happens by repeating the exact same process of first salvation. This is really important. I'm going to really be very clear about this. There is no, there is not a process for, the process for regeneration or transformation is not different than the process for salvation. We come to faith in God, we come to faith in Christ by becoming aware of our sin, by becoming aware of sin, by repenting from it, and by accepting God's life in exchange. And it's identical in transformation in the struggle. That as we find the places in our life that are we're not living up to this code or the standard that we want to be, that, the, that we apply the awareness of that we're short, we apply our repentance that we want to go a different direction, and we ask God to change us, and we exchange Christ's life for our own. We don't get a once-done Savior. We get a Savior who is with us in the struggle every day of our lives. What I'm saying is that the chief benefit of salvation is not that we get the cessation of struggle in this world. The chief benefit of salvation is the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in our daily lives. Bruce talked about the Spirit last week, and he talked at great length about how important it is that God is with us. Paul wrote it this way in Romans 5. He said, We rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces our perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So here is the metric then, if you're in the struggle. The metric is, how much struggle am I having? The metric is, how much love am I experiencing? I think that we can, we can endure in tremendous amounts of pain if we realize that the person that's allowing that pain to come to us really has our best interests at heart and is really working healing in our lives. I have an arthritic left right toe something to do with having run about 57,000 miles in my life has made that toe stop working so well and i thought i was going to have surgery first and i got a second opinion and basically the second surgeon said are you kidding you know don't do that try some therapy for a while and so i went for uh i'm going for therapy ah and i had this friend who's a great massage therapist and so um he said i i think i can help you mobilize it i think i can help you and so this is what rim does basically my toe uh, was working like a sausage, uh, bent like that, pretty much like that. And uh, so what Rem's job is, is he basically gets in there and he makes it do that or that. Yesterday, when he was doing this, um, at some moment, I wasn't swearing and I wasn't hitting him, um, <laughs> but it was blinding. It was blind. I mean, I think I have a pretty good pain tolerance, but this was blinding pain. And I was thinking, if I felt this when I was just walking, I would stop walking and I would say, somebody has to take me to the doctor or hospital right now. I think my toe is broken. I think this is really wrong. It was that kind of pain. And as he was bending it back and forth, and I was about to say, stop, would you just stop that? He said, wow, this is great. We're getting extension now. <laughs> I, 
I said, what's extension and why is this so great? And um, I said, please just stop for a minute, would you? And he did. Ah, but I will entrust my toe and that pain to him because my hope is for healing. And because there's a relay I want to run with a bunch of friends in, in August or September. And if this toe isn't bending, I'm not going to get to run. And so I've got to go through that process of transforming my toe. And I've got to trust Rim to do it. And it's going to be painful. I know it. And that's how it is. That's how it comes to us. One illustration, one more illustration, and one practical how-to to talk to you about how we get this. How do we stay in the struggle and what happens? The first illustration is this. That relationship with God is very much like marriage. In fact, when the Bible talks about our relationship with God, it very often calls us Christ's bride and makes this allusion to the fact that we're, we're married to God. And um, when, when, when people, couples come to, have come to me in the past and asked me if I would marry them, I'm always excited about that. And usually in our first meeting when we sit down together, I, I say something like this to them. I say, you know, um, no couple ever walks down that aisle um, thinking that, 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now, that they're going to be divorced. But, but what the three of us know is that in more than half the cases, they will be. So what makes you so special? And when I ask that question, what I'm not asking them is, how do they have it all figured out? Or, you know, do they have all the right answers? Or are they old enough? Or, I mean, really what I'm looking for is three things. The first is simple. I want to know how strong their vows really are. I want to see some muscle behind that. I want to see the strength of their will. I want to see if their jaw locks when they talk about their love for each other. I want to hear about, if I can, I want to hear something about the struggles that they've already faced. And, and, and I really want to, um, to see humility in that. I'd love to hear a story about how one or the other failed and how the other person gave them grace because a lot of marriage is about is about, I will definitely fail you to the degree that I have the ability to fail, which is wide and large, more wide, wider and larger than you can ever imagine. And I want to know, will the other person have enough grace to, let, to forgive them for that? So I'm looking for those two things. Is there a will there? And do they have the humility to admit their faults and the ability to give grace when a false man committed against them? And then I'm looking for a third thing, because it is, I'm, I believe I'm performing the right of Christian marriage and not just marriage. I'm trying to discern in their stories the presence of the Spirit. Because the presence of the Spirit is the difference. If your battle and your struggle is just your will versus, you know, the power of sin, then then what this is going to be, it's going to be dualism. And it's going to be by might and by power. But what we know is that that our salvation is not by might and not by power. It's by the Spirit. And so in that discussion, what I want to see is, will they join the Spirit with their wills and with their vows? And in that combination, the struggle will tilt, and it will tilt their way over time. It doesn't mean that their marriage won't be a struggle. I'm sure it will be. All marriages are struggle. Everything is struggle. But it does mean that the marriage will persevere and will produce great joy and love, because love is the measurement. Is you, are you increasing in love? When the Bible talks about holiness, it's not talking about a standard of rules that we keep. How do we know holiness? That we love God more and we love our neighbor more. 
that fulfilled to fulfill the law, love God and love your neighbor. That's the first. That's the illustration. How do you get that? Well, I have a, a bit of an example for that. Um, I've had a bit of testing myself here over the last month or so. And uh, recently, a, a friend of uh, Kathy and ours sent Kathy an email. Kathy had shared um, my, my story with her and asked her to pray. And she sent back a scripture that I love. It's, it's Psalm, Psalm 1, the first Psalm. And in that Psalm, what it says is that, you know, the, uh, uh, that there's this sort of person or man who delights in the law of the Lord, that he meditates on it day and night, and that he can stand in the presence of mockers, and he can be strong. Like a tree that's rooted beside a river, taking water from the river and producing fruit and leaves and shade in time. And that really resonates deeply inside me when I read that, because I want to be that person that stands strong and that person that produces a life that provides fruit and shade, that, that replicates its own life, essentially fruit, and provides shade to others that come, come, come around that tree. That's what I want to be. And so when I hear that, I think, ah, that's the good part of the gospel. That's the delight of the law. That's what I want to live towards. But in the very same moment, what I realize, what I see is all the ways I'm trying to get that from myself. So I've become fairly boundaryless because I want to please. That becomes people-pleasing. I find it very difficult to say no to people. I overload my schedule. I take on too many things. I get my priorities out of space because I'm trying to grab the salvation for myself which really needs to happen over a prolonged period of time. So what I want you to see in that story is this, that with the presence of the Spirit, as you read the Bible, you'll find some passages that will resonate with you that won't resonate with other people. But when you find that thing that resonates with your heart where you say, wow, that's what I want to be, the next question you can ask the Spirit is, and how am I trying to grab that thing for myself instead of resting and abiding in you during this struggle and letting you bring it to me? You don't need a once-and-done Savior. What you need is a Savior who's with you in every moment of the struggle because he's using that struggle to transform your life. We have such a great salvation. Such a great salvation. So much greater salvation to just hope for it to just happen once and then to be over. We have the kind of salvation that makes a difference in the moments of life. Not easy, very difficult. But the outcome of that, if it's lived well, is that it's transforming not only for you, but for everyone else. You know, in Gladiator, there's this scene in Gladiator where, uh, I can't, I've forgotten, Gladiator, whatever his name is, says, he says, what we do in this world, we do in this world echoes in eternity. And in a real practical way, what I would say is that getting naked like this about where we're being transformed, about being what our, what, our, what our sins are and about where we're strong and wanting to live more fully, I think that, the, that our friends are dying to see that done and see that done openly and see that done with integrity. And when we do that, it not only ransoms our own lives, it ransoms the lives of our friends. Let's pray. God, thank you for such a great salvation. And thank you uh, for this struggle. Uh, We know we're alive because we struggle. And we thank you that we're not in it alone, but you, in fact, are in it with us and that you are the one who will win it for us. In your son's name we pray. Amen.